Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Last week, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio announced the city's 1.1 million school children would have to wait another 10 days to get back to classrooms. As purportedly unanswered questions about the feasibility and prudence of reopening schools prompted threats of a teacher strike. Well, New York stands out in being one of the only major school districts attempting a return in person this September. But the questions that teachers and parents are asking about in-person learning are being asked in districts around the country. Will our kids be safe if they return to classrooms? What about teachers? And what happens if a child or staff member contracts COVID? The answers to many of these questions are rarely straightforward, but with the stakes as high as they are, Parents, teachers, and administrators need answers. One place they might find hints about what to expect for K-12 schools is in the childcare sector. Indeed, as K-12 schools have largely remained shuttered since March, many childcare and early learning centers around the country have continued in-person care. On this episode of The Report Card, I talk with Celia Sims about what's going on in the world of early childhood education, and what lessons the sector might offer to K-12 stakeholders. Celia is the VP of Government Relations at KinderCare, one of the largest childcare and early childhood education providers in the world. Celia, thanks for coming on the report card. Thank you so much for having me. So before we get knee-deep into COVID, let's do a little table setting. Uh, For listeners who may not be familiar, can you tell me about KinderCare? What is it? How many kids do you serve? Where are you located? That sort of thing. Sure. We are the largest, actually, private child care provider in the U.S. (laughs) Pre-COVID, I'll give you some numbers. We were serving, usually on a daily basis, around 185,000 children. We have locations in 40 states and the District of Columbia. We have been in business for... I guess it was last year we celebrated our 50th anniversary. Interestingly, the company was originally founded in Montgomery, Alabama. And then somehow back in the, I think it was in the early 90s, found its headquarters moved across the country to Portland, Oregon. But uh, said the company's been around for about 50 years. And the main brand that people know us best by is the KinderCare Learning Centers. If you see one of our older buildings, it tends to have this iconic red steeple that a lot of people have associated us with. I remember it from my youth. Yes. yes. <laughs> but we have two other brands. One is called Kinder Care at Work, and that's where we do a direct partnership with an employer, either to do their on-site care or to work with that employer to provide care for their employees through our network of 1,500 Kinder Care centers. And then we have another brand called Champions, uh, where we have for years worked directly with public public school districts and private schools to provide their before and after school programming on campus. So to put this in context, Celia, you said that you had about 140,000 kids coming to kinder care. And if you compare that to the largest school districts, that would put you in the top 150 school districts in terms of size in the United States. This is a big operation. Right. The difference we have between a school district is that our schools are spread across 40 states (laughs) versus all in one uh, geographic area. (laughs) Okay. So back in March, you're serving 140,000 kids. Before the uh, pandemic was officially declared a pandemic, what was KinderCare's approach to the coronavirus? I mean, what was your initial reaction and what did the early planning conversations look like? 
Right. So initially, as Corona was coming into being, we were taking our cues, as we always do, from you start with CDC, public health officials, state officials. As you know, it's been, you know, and I don't, you know, I don't want to get to a discussion of who was right, who was wrong, but it's been a little confusing, some of the guidance. I've heard that. <laughs> Over time. So we also um, have always had a large health and safety group um, at our company. So we, we were out, you know, seeking guidance from individuals who were epidemiologists, who were emergency pediatricians, you know, what is it that we can do? What was so stunning about you know, the issue is that as this picked up, I said, like at March 9th, we were at 143,000 children. Two weeks later, we were down to 13,000. So was that because you closed a bunch of centers or did you just reduce capacity? What, what did that draw? It was a combination. It initially was just parents pulling their children out. And that was because the school shut down, office buildings started to close. And at that point, we had to make a decision. Do we try to keep our 1,500 centers open, all of them, or do we try to get better strategic knowing that we don't know how long this is going to last, people are doing different things. So we called our number of centers from around 1,500 to a little over 400. And the ones we left open were ones that were, we mapped all of our centers to like within a three mile radius of healthcare centers, as well as military installations. And that was how we pulled our number of centers and we went down around like the end of March, around 450 centers. And those centers were the ones that uh, I'm assuming from your perspective, healthcare, military bases, we're talking essential personnel. Yes. Right. So what what kind of timeline were you thinking on at this time? I mean, you know, a lot of school districts were thinking we're going to shut down for two weeks and we'll be back up and running in no time. Uh, Were you thinking short term at that point or were you looking at the long term? I mean, I think we were, it was a combination. I mean, you were t- everyone was like kind of shooting in the dark. I mean, obviously for us to step down the number of centers we had, we knew it wasn't going to be just a two-week process because, I mean, there are costs associated and we had to furlough thousands of teachers at that time. And, you know, when you just reopen, you don't reopen a childcare center also on a, you know, like at a moment's notice, you have to hire your staff back. And so I think it was more of a medium game. Now, like how many months? I think we all thought by now, as everyone in the country, that things would be moving along a little bit more fully than they are. But one thing we have always been is agile and ability to take new data, new information, adjust. And that is what we have continued to do. And today, all of our centers are open across the country. And in what capacity? In general, we're probably serving about 45-50% of our operating capacity. That will that can be very different. There are some centers that are almost back to normal. I would say those tend to be our centers where we've also just for context for kindercare, we serve a very wide socio-demographic of families. Going into this, about a third of our families were low-income working families. Centers that serve the higher concentration of those children have been at higher capacity because those tend to be families whose their jobs are not, um, you can't do them remote. Right. So you have to have care for your children during the day. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty interesting indicator all, all by itself. So over the six months that it's been since March, Can you sort of sketch that arc? I mean, when was it that things started to lift out of the the bottom of the trough in March? And how did it ramp up? Was it slow? Was it late summer? 
I'm just trying to get a sense of how it goes back into shape. Sure. I mean, I guess, you know, the states reopened in a variety of fashions. Uh, jurisdictions open in a variety of fashions. So coming into, I would say, May, like you started to see, we started ramping up a reopening centers. They did tend to reopen faster in the Sun Belt. You know, so Texas, Florida, uh, also the Midwest never did a full shutdown. The areas where it has been slowest to reopen has been uh, the Northeast, which had much stricter shutdowns. Right. And even though there were at times like we would have, we would have probably felt comfortable opening. There were some states that by edict, we were not allowed to reopen. Kentucky pretty much shut all of childcare down. And there were some other states in that, in that bucket. So uh, I imagine you have a pretty clear pulse on the early childhood world. How would you say things are going on in the sector as a whole? And do you think the 45%, 50% capacity you're talking about it is probably indicative of what we're seeing across the board? From the data we've seen, and there is no great clearinghouse, I think that's fairly indicative of where folks are. Again, any given center could be almost full or beyond full. And that is indicative. The lower number is indicative. Sometimes we are still under reduced operating capacity by local or state mandate. And some of it is, you know, parents have not, they are not yet ready to return. And that's a combination of they may be uncomfortable. They may have had lost a job and can't afford or have no, like at the moment, don't have a need because one spouse is not working any longer, or they're just kind of continuing to do what they've been doing the last couple of months and not trying to rock the boat, particularly if they've got school-age children. We've heard that, like, I'm not ready to kind of readjust the schedule until I know what K-12 is doing because the family has just emotionally gotten settled and change is hard. Sure. So, Celia, not too long ago, I rang you up and said, hey, Help me understand some of these numbers I'm seeing. And I'm going to quote you some of these. From California, they have some state tracking of the number of cases that have come out of child care centers and family-run child care centers. There's a lot more family-run. What they're reporting as of August 23rd, is two weeks ago, mm -hmm. they have almost 34,000 centers open in California. Almost 9,000 are, are centers, non-family-run. Out of that, they have less than 2,100 cases for children, staff, and parents, and less than 448 cases for kids. Yeah. And I came to you and said, this is eye-popping to me. This suggests to me that the transmission rate in California childcare centers is pretty low, it is much less than I would expect, especially given all the concerns that I've heard about bringing elementary school students back or students back in general. Now, obviously it's not, it's apples and oranges to some degree, but they're still in the same fruit basket, right? I mean, they're not totally unrelated. So when I asked you that, can, can you, and, and we put this out there for our listeners, can you help put that into context? I mean, are the transmission rates extremely low? How much of a comparison should we make and how high a quality is this data? What should we make of it? Um, yeah, so like, um, let's still restart the data. Um, I've got a lot of questions about some of the state data. Um, it is it is messy. I think California's is fairly messy. Texas is fairly messy. 
But there have been some states that have been much cleaner on their data and much more methodical, like North Carolina and in Oregon. And in general, I would say the transmission rates that we've seen where I like, I think the data are, are good. And, and we are very much at KinderCare tracking our own transmission rates in comparison to states. It has been fairly low, like KinderCare, like our transmission rate, it's, you know, a fifth of what the state rate is. That I would say for KinderCare and for the high quality childcare providers in general is very attributable to the health and safety practices we have had in place from the beginning and that have adjusted over time on this. But in general, the transmission rates do appear to be low. We follow very carefully directives from state and local health officials, like when there is a case, and there have been cases. If you find any multi-site provider out there who says they've not had a case, I would, I would be skeptical because then it's, you know, when you have a case in a child care center day, it's not necessarily a indication that provider has done something wrong. I mean, this virus is in the community. Our staff, our families, our children do not live in a bubble in our center. So invariably, someone is going to be exposed on the outside. Absolutely. So I imagine, and I'm sure you're not dishing on the small family centers, because I'm sure they're doing practices too, but they're probably not as institutionalized as the large practices. But again, when you look at these numbers, at least the ones from California, which break out the private family, family care centers, Again, we're just seeing pretty low numbers. Now, if those numbers are are tracking low, what should somebody like me who's just watching school reopening plans and trying to figure out whether we are accurately assessing the risk of sending students back to school? What assertions might we make from this data about K-12 schools? And even if we limit it to elementary schools, certainly they could both take some of the same measures to protect students. Undoubtedly, they will. But we've got a lot of closed elementary schools out there. And I certainly don't want to grasp onto a hope that, hey, it's easy. Let's walk right into the lion's mouth. But neither do I want to sit back and ignore evidence that really sort of makes me think, we should be sending kids back to school more frequently than we are. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the safest assertion is, yes, I think it can be done. Nothing is risk-free, but it can be done safely. Again, knowing that like, there's, no, like, there's going to be cases, but it takes very thoughtful planning. It takes thoughtful training. It takes very thoughtful and transparent communication to make this all work. And, and so, you know, we have had at KinderCare and, and other providers who stayed open through it. I mean, we have been at this with COVID-19 protocols from March. I mean, our protocols have evolved over that. We have learned more. We've adjusted some things we used to do. We don't do some things we didn't do. We now do, but it, you know, it has been an evolutionary stage. I know that things will continue to change. But it, again, as I said earlier, like when we went from going down to like 400 some centers back to 1500, we didn't open them overnight either. And even when states were reopening, we had very thoughtful plans about like how do you bring your staff back? How do you train them? What are the protocols? So I, I do think it is possible, but it takes a lot of these early steps of the thoughtful planning, the thoughtful training, and 
really clear communication to your families, your staff, and others, and uh, you know how you're going to how you how you're going to respond when inevitably a case does occur. Let me ask you about the two sectors, sort of the childcare sector versus the K twelve sector, in terms of just their outlook and their base of operations pre COVID on looking out for the public health needs of their students. And the reason I ask is because oftentimes when we think of really young kids, we're concerned, really concerned about vaccinations. We're concerned about transmission of diseases when kids are are little and perhaps more susceptible. I mean, you have heard what many teachers have said that classrooms are like Petri dishes. I'm sure it's the same thing for our learning centers. Is there a difference in the roles that childcare centers have played when it comes to public health and the role K-12 schools assume? Right. So I think the biggest difference is historically, childcare has been regulated almost primarily from the beginning from a health and safety perspective. That is very different than (laughs) K-12. I mean, we are inspected constantly from a health and safety. I mean, some states, you know, health and safety inspections happen four times a year, you know, and sometimes it's, it's you know, more often, but it is just always, it has evolved as a, you know, health and safety being the primary concern and check on, do you have a quality provider or not? Now, health and safety does not in and of it, so you could be the cleanest and safest place. Does that mean you would give a quality interaction between the adult and the child? But without basic health and safety and childcare settings, none of this other stuff could really occur. So we just, I mean, we have a history of that, that K-12 does not. And it's not, I'm not saying that K-12 are dirty and like they don't know how to do things, but their teachers are not trained on how do you work with young children to wash their hands. Childcare is all about what, like we have been talking and teaching hand washing forever. <laughs> it's a second nature. We know how to make it fun. We also know um, because, you know, in childcare settings, particularly with various children at various levels of, you know, immunization schedules and whatnot, you know, we are attuned to outbreaks. Not that they happen frequently, but they have happened, um, you know, over time historically. So we've always had interactions with public health officials about an outbreak and, you know, how you handle that and how you take your cues from public health officials. And it's just a very different, it is a very different construct that K-12 really came out from a, you start with the education and maybe the health and safety (laughs) is somewhere in there. And Childcare starts with health and safety, and now over time we've started adding, which I think is a good thing, educational and other quality standards. Right. So uh, back to the records that have been tracking. You said that the California data was fairly loose, and indeed it is loose. I mean, the the counts that they're putting out are sort of cases, not necessarily defined very well, and then centers. So you don't really have the the number of children in the centers, right? So you can't actually figure out what the, the case rate is out of. And to somebody like me, who is, again, sort of concerned both with childcare, but, but also with K-12 reopenings, I'd really like to have a little bit better handle on that data, right? The better data you have, the more you can actually sort of follow the science in terms of reopening. Mm-hmm. seems to me that we're a little bit hamstrung to follow that science because we can't look at other places that might be indicative of what we might expect if we reopen public schools. So having said that, 
what kind of data does get collected? And, and I know that you're not a data expert, but I'm just curious as to what kind of data we would have wanted collected by these states to give us a, a good angle that could inform school reopening decisions. Sure. So I would say in every state in which we operate, we are required, if there is a positive case or presumed, to report to public health. But that's where it kind of has stopped in a lot of states on the data. And then there have been, I would say, the state that stands out to me at both on collection and reporting of data for childcare and K-12 is North Carolina. They have been, since the outset of this, um, been reporting not just the, num- the center, the number of cases, but they've been looking at clusters where there have been clusters that are associated in a particular setting. And to me, that is the most important data to be looking at in any type of congregate setting. I mean, as we talked about, there's always going to be an individual here or there <laughs> who is going to have exposure somewhere. Right. The question is, what's happening in that childcare setting, what's happening in that school setting, or now we should, I think, then you're asking what's happening on that college campus. And are there things, you know, if you start to see large numbers in a congregate setting, that is probably indicative of a breakdown or a need to tighten up. I mean, it could also be you've got a familial unit in there, but you need to look at it. And so like North Carolina and Oregon is also doing this on a weekly basis, published data in childcare settings where there has been five or more related cases. And that's public health officials doing the contact tracing saying, hey, these five or more cases, both of staff and or children seem to be associated in that setting. And that to me is the important data, which California is not doing and Texas is not doing. And I I think we talked earlier, I had a somewhat, I found, wild conversation with Texas because they were reporting to the press numbers similar to California. We've had this number of, you know, cases, but it was not associated with clusters. And so I emailed the state and I said, well, one I asked, I said, I keep seeing you giving data to the press. Where are the data on your website? Oh, it's not on our website, but if you call us, we'll give you the numbers. Well, it might be nice from <laughs> you can report data to the press to actually make it easily available. And then I said, you know, are you do you have plans to look at these data via a cluster cluster model? And they said, we just don't have the capability. So the distinction you're making is, hey, you can have cases and those can just sort of stem from we are not impervious to the community with which we are in. There is COVID in the community there will inevitably be some cases associated with our center. Okay. The cluster is when we have a center and we have a bunch of cases, much more dense than you would find in the population. And that is an area of concern because it suggests that the center is actually spreading COVID. And this seems to me to be the concern that we have about schools. I mean, Certainly, we are seeing this in colleges, right? Colleges are returning, and then, wow, their case rates really go up. Where? At that school. That's a problem. But the consumer of information about these cases, in order to actually read what's going on, needs to be able to distinguish between, well, that kinder care center had a case of COVID, I heard, and there was a cluster at that kinder care center. 
And I'm sympathetic with state health departments that are probably dealing with a rather long to-do list. Nonetheless, this seems like a, a pretty important distinction to make to provide information to K-12 schools as they're opening up. And what you're saying, it seems like, is the minority of states are providing that service. From what I have seen, I have not seen many states with the exception of a few, really looking at this from the cluster perspective. I mean, states, I, you know, I think where they have been concentrating on their efforts on the cluster data have been at long-term health facilities and nursing homes. We all, I think, can agree that was a necessity. But I, it was interesting. I was listening to another podcast not too long ago with John Barry, who wrote the book on influenza several years ago. But the one thing he said about the 1918 outbreak, and I think I have seen, you know, just watching this, is it's the lack of transparency that really starts to weigh on people because they don't know. And when you don't know, you start to make your own, you know, you can make whatever theory you want out of it. And I think it's just so much better to be upfront about like what your policies are, like to collect the data and then be upfront like, when this happens, this is how we will respond in concert with public health officials. But like, you know, when we have one case and it's restricted to a center, sometimes the public health officials tell us to close down for 72 hours, do a deep clean. We clearly communicate that with the parents. And that has, you know, we've had a number of 72 hour closures over this period of time with deep cleaned. Um, but sometimes we have had, so there's larger you know, those larger, we had this much earlier, those larger outbreaks of five or more that necessitate us to close for 14 days. And in that time of that 14 days, we also retrained all of our staff. And one thing I would say that we have learned, which I think we have seen why we now don't have many clusters, not to say that we won't, we hope not, but it's more one-off cases, is our very much adherence to what we're the term was coming up in early childhood before K-12 took it over the pod structure. And we do think, and we've heard this from epidemiologists and public other public health officials, it is the number one thing that we are doing in our child care centers at kinder care. I know other providers are doing it as well. And that we are keeping the same group of children and staff together throughout the day. And that way, if, if there is ever a case, you are restricting the number of people possibly exposed. And that has been critical in our parent. We've done, I think, a, a really good job communicating that pod structure to our parents and why it's important. But that has, we have seen that very much keep us down on the number of clusters. And that pod structure, what I understand that to be, is, is simply that instead of having a large kinder care center with mixing of everyone in the center, you partitioned it into particular rooms and this, the the children in those rooms don't mix with the other rooms and right. that breaks down the probability of transfer. Right. And then we've got other, you know, it, procedures in place in that, you know, parents don't come into classrooms anymore and they understand why, because we need to, again, reduce the, just the number of interactions in a given day. Let me ask you a little bit about how you negotiate competition. Kindergarten is a private provider and there's, precautions that you have to take for safety and to manage the virus, to, to close, to reopen uh, at, at a deliberate pace during the pandemic. On the other hand, you got a bunch of parents that need to work and I'm sure you got plenty of demand. Um, and so to some degree, I 
I think there may be a concern here that for childcare centers that want to maximize the number of families that they can serve, that's better for their bottom line. There's nothing wrong with that as long as it's balanced with, you know, precautions. How would you describe sort of the the presence of competition during COVID? Are you getting a lot of transfers when you open up uh, ahead of other areas? Is it managed such that the entire system sort of comes back uh, at the same time? Or, or, Or does that vary across states? It really does vary. I mean, I said we've got, you know, parents are coming back on different schedules. We have picked up parents who were not, were not kinder care parents prior. A number of them, that is because their former center did not reopen. There are a number of childcare centers that have not reopened. It could be a change in the work schedule. I mean, there's a whole multitude, but we do, you know, we have been like Kentucky just the other day, they were one of the most restrictive through COVID. They just lifted the group size or raised the group size that you could have in any given group. And Ohio was slower on that. Massachusetts has been, you know, slower on that. And particularly in Ohio and Kentucky, and we've had it in other states as well, when we were capped at, you know, maybe you used to be able to have 15 in a room, but now you could only have six in a room. We did have parents, you know, like on the wait list calling, like, I've got to find someplace. Because as we've talked, I mean, there are a lot of jobs that are not, you cannot do them remotely. And parents need a safe place to take their child during the day. A lot of time over the past six months has undoubtedly been spent solely on COVID and preparing to return. So when there's thousands of school administrators bringing kids back, many are remote, but a lot are bringing kids back. And I'm sure they're up at night worrying about it. What advice would you give to those administrators as uh, they start another school year? I mean, I think as we've talked already, I mean, the top three things are planning <laughs> for health and safety, which is, a you know, for a lot of K-12 is a new thing. And, you know, there are lots of child care providers in your community. They could be a good resource to actually ask, you know, what are the types of things you've done? You know, where have the, you know, where have you seen, you know, where you've had to adjust your operations? And then I think there's a lot of, has to be a lot of deliberate training and outreach to teachers on health and safety, not just what they need to do, but what is also being done to keep the, you know, keep that school setting as clean and safe as is possible. And then also very clear communication plans on, you know, if, you know, if and when there's a case, these are the procedures we take. We take our cues from the public health officials. This is what we, you might expect to happen. Again, clear articulation of how that's going to be reported to the public. I think one of the things I've, I've noticed through this, I think you and I talked about it, and I haven't seen as much up for K-12, but higher ed's been really, I think, fascinating to watch in this. So it's the beginning of some of this coming back, throwing out FERPA and HIPAA as reasons why they could not initially be transparent on the number of cases on their case, you know, on their campus, which is just a bunch of baloney. Those are laws about privacy concerns. Privacy, right. right. And again, like when we re- when we talk about, you know, reveal to our parents that we've had a case or not, we do not reveal an individual person's name. Right. Like you would never do that. But you do have to be transparent about what has happened, what you're going to do and your cleaning protocol and how you plan to reopen. And everyone needs that to feel comfortable about, you know, what decision they're making. Yeah. A a lack of transparency on this point 
may not do much for parent confidence. No, not at all. <laughs> well, Celia, thanks for coming on the report card and talking to us. And we wish the best for kinder care and the thousands of kids that you're taking care of every day. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guest, Celia Sims. I also want to thank our producers. They make this podcast possible. That includes Matt Rice and Tyler Hoover. You can subscribe to the report card on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute to leave us a review so other folks can find the show. You can send comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Matt Moss.